Welcome back to the Change Your Filter podcast powered by Contractor Commerce. Today's episode is going to be a little different. Our guest today is Keith Mercurio. Keith is the founder and CEO at Ethical Influence Global and the Senior Director of Executive Success at Service Titan, where he coaches some of the highest performing leaders, not just in our industry, but in business. Keith is a very special guest and should have been, could have been the first or maybe second guest on the Change Your Filter podcast. But a few days before Keith was set to record, he had to reschedule to tend to his mother's declining health situation back home. Keith shared a few days later that his mother had passed away, and he shared this special remark that I want to share with you. At the very moment we watched her soul leave her body, a bright ray of light shone through the window on an otherwise gray day in what was an unmistakable signal to anyone present that she had ascended into a new world. I never knew what to believe in this regard. I do now. This conversation is dedicated to the life and legacy of Faith and Doyle Mercurio. Hey, this is Keith Mercurio, and you're listening to the Change Your Filter podcast with Tall Paul. Keith, a year or so ago, we had dinner with my family, and you had mentioned something that I wanted to ask more about, but I didn't. And I been meaning to ask, but you had said, my lifestyle is my fitness. What did you mean by that? Well, it's, it's actually a perfectly, uh, it's a poignant question to cause me to confront myself a little bit right now. What I believe I was referring to was my aspiration that my lifestyle be my fitness. And in that, what I meant is, um, you know, I don't particularly enjoy working out and, uh, you know, having to go to exercise class or stuff like that. I, and, and yet I, being fit is important to me. So my ideal lifestyle is getting to a place where, you know, I'm surfing and skiing and uh, playing sports enough that it's maintaining my physical fitness so that my, just my way of life is creating fitness for me. Now that said, uh, that's aspirational. Um, but it is still a true statement because right now my lifestyle is very much my fitness. Uh, it's just not the aspirational version. It's the version with not enough exercise, uh, way too much, you know, drinking, not enough healthy eating, all those things I found myself really challenged lately uh, to be living into my ideal lifestyle. And so that's, you know, that's an ongoing, an ongoing battle for sure. But I'm, I'm far from where I, where I want to be right now. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm glad you asked this question. I think you're, you've, you've forced a confrontation with self in a public setting. Is it distracting or difficult when you're in a rut? It sounds like you're describing you're maybe in a rut or you're off track for where you would normally want to be. So how do you manage that? How does it make you feel? Well, y- yes. It, so there's two things. It, there's the actual physiological effect, right? Like I was just thinking about this last night because my sleeping has been really just conf- just challenged. And this is... So it's really, I think, you know, candidly, I mean, very difficult period of my life. I, I just went through a two month stretch in which my mom went into the hospital, ended up dying from complications from COVID and, and uh, dad has Alzheimer's, which meant that I had to go live with him full time while we got, went through the process of, of mom's death and, and the eulogy and the funeral plans and everything that went with that, and then move him into assisted living. So this was all like, over a five week period. 
And uh, my buddy, my buddy said, he said, do you look like you've lost, you've lost weight? What are you, you know, what are you doing lately? I was like, uh, mostly just alcohol and tears have been the primary dietary supplements that have uh, led to this. And so, you know, during that period though, now the stress and the stressors that came with that, I'm dealing like brutal sleep patterns, getting woken up at two, three in the morning, just with thoughts racing in my brain about all the stuff I still need to do to take care of him and the estate and sell the house and all this. And, um, and I was just thinking to myself, I said, I'm like, God, I've got to get my exercise back on because the physiological effect of what that does is very real as far as, you know, causing stress levels to, to rise without any outlet. So there's that. And then there's just like the self-judgment. I mean, I've just find I beat myself up when I don't look my best. And when I don't, when I don't feel my best and I know I'm not taking the healthy steps and, you know, and I think that's, if I were coaching me, I would say, Hey, be gentle on yourself. You know, like you, you don't have to there's no reason to shame yourself. You're only going to drive the cycle further. Um, but intellectually, you know, and, and just as a human being, it's easy to not feel great about yourself when you're not performing in one area of your life that's important at, it, at its best. So yeah, that's how it makes me feel. Yeah. And you recently turned 40 within this year, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. You're getting to that age where what you just went through with your mother and with your father will become more common for people kind of in this band mm. of age, any perspective or advice for people that are facing, you know, the declining health of a parent or the potential loss of a parent, any perspective on that experience that you didn't have prior to that happening? Any regrets? Yeah, so much. It's a big and question. Sorry. this is what I, I really no. This is no, this is exactly, I was just going to say this to you. This is why I, I admire and, and adore you so much. So the first thing, almost anybody else, when a topic like that comes up, will, you know, sort of apologize and typically move on your willingness to then recognize that there's more to be had here from the value of, of human life standpoint and to dig in and ask a follow up question that goes deeper is why I so respect you. And, and the, to, to answer the question, I'm, I'm really glad you've asked because I've been thinking about where am I going to find an outlet to share some of the things that I've learned along the way that could help other people. And now you've provided it um, in this in this moment. And I'll, there's a couple of a couple of, of, you know, I mean, I'm still processing a lot, but there's a couple of really well synthesized thoughts that have that have come out of this uh, for me. So the first one is in regard to like that period of time in which, you know, mom was in the hospital and then ultimately passed and, and everything else that was going on. Um, I learned something that had never occurred to me before. And it, it's such a simple thing about what it's like, how people on the outside can best support you because there were two separate ways in which people would sort of reach out. On the one hand, folks would reach out and just say, you know, Hey, what's going on? can you update us, you know, like what's happening and kind of want a response. What they didn't know is that I was at my physical, emotional bandwidth max. I had maxed out. I had nothing left to give. And so the idea of taking time to like respond to people and share with them the details of what was happening when they weren't in a position to help or to offer any assistance, it was really fascinating. And it was such a draw on me going through it. And they meant, well, they were being sweet. I just, it was a learning curve mm -hmm. compared to the people that would reach out with a text message and just say, 
hey, we're thinking of you. We love you. Let us know the moment that you can support us, that we can support you. Let us know exactly what you need from us. Just that willing, you know, hey, I'm available Thursday. What, if anything, can I do to help? That that sort of generosity and offering just love, energy, and and then if available effort, so meaningful would really uplift you. Whereas the the request for something back was really uh, draining. So it was like, what a beautiful thing to be able to learn in the future of how I can support somebody going through something like this differently with just that nuance, uh, you know, indifference in what the, what the ask is. The, the other one that really like completely amazed me. Um, so, and I'll, you know, I'll get emotional to sharing this and I don't, I don't mind that at all. Um, you know, dad, dad going through this, this man was married for 50 years and in the course of a few weeks had to process the, you know, his wife going into the hospital. Um, you know, I mean, he, over the past, over the past year, uh, he's lost his ability to drive. Uh, he's lost his ability to go for walks, you know, cause he, it's not safe for him. He lost his dog of 16 years. Um, then lost his wife and then lost his home. Right. So this guy going through and not to mention the whole time losing the faculties of his mind. Mm -hmm. And, and this is, this, this, you're talking about a brilliant man, an orator, a real, um, just, just a, a guy whose love of the English language was, you know, the inspiration for our entire family he was an English teacher and, and even the work that we do now struggling to put together sentences. He would get so, so upset with himself, so frustrated during this period. And he would forget things and repeat himself. And then, you know, I or my brother, my sister, somebody might lose our patience with him. And then he would feel even worse about himself. And he has these mood swings and stuff like that, that were part of this, especially with the upheaval. Right. And so I found myself wanting to, um, you know, a couple of mornings I woke up and he was off to a really tough start. And he was in a bad mood and all hunched over. And I was like, dad, come on, let me give you a hug. And I would give him a hug and he'd take it, but nothing would change. It wouldn't alter anything. He kind of did it, but it was sort of burdensome to him. And I don't know what happened, but like the, the third or fourth day in to this pattern, instead of offering him a hug, I asked for one. And he just, he looked at me and he was like, oh buddy, of course. And he just gave me this big hug. And suddenly both he and I had, had transformed our, the space that we were in and the power of, you know, I, I think it was just this shift in, I was trying to hug him to fix him. And in doing so, I was just further showing him or reinforcing how much he needs us you know, needs others and, and can't do for himself. And, and we're trying to fix them. The minute that I just asked him for that hug, it was like, he lit up with a reminder that a, I needed him, you know, and he still had purpose and he still had something to offer. And it wasn't me trying to fix him. It was me just being vulnerable and saying, Hey buddy, I, I need a hug right now. And it was a transformational moment and, and just transformational for the way that I looked at how to interact with him. And 
you know, it's challenging because there's like legitimate dangers in creating too much autonomy for somebody with Alzheimer's, right? I mean, that's, that, that has to be balanced in this. I mean, really, you know, dangerous things that can take place. And so the key is, you know, where can I find the patience and grace to ask for his opinion, ask for his input, ask for his involvement, ask for his help in areas that don't, that do matter, but don't risk his well-being at all. And the more I did that, the closer our, our relationship grew over the past couple of months. And it was a really you know, beautiful reminder of, of how to go through this with somebody and, and kind of still remember to see the best in them, uh, along the way. And, and remember, you know, just think about what it's, what, you know, what it has to be like to lose so much. And so, you know, anywhere that I can find an opportunity and I don't do it well all the time, Paul, I get, I, I, God moving him. I, he tested every bit of my patience and that was, you know, I felt terrible about it. And we went through some tough times with that, but, um, he, where you can find ways to invite his input, invite that person's input back in and give them some control back, meaningful control, uh, it's pretty beautiful what it does for somebody. I know that we shouldn't sit and dwell and think about the what ifs in the future and all those sort of things, but has the thought crept in that one day that could be you one day it could be me one day it could be your wife and how does going through that with a parent inform or change your perspective on how you live your life today if if at any at all i mean that's no one considers planning for something like that so the the biggest part this is a, such a poignant question again um and you're spot on uh so the, the, the biggest part, the learning that I have immediate control and, and availability over. And of course we don't, my wife and I don't have kids as of now. We have just the, oh, just the puppy that just jumped up on the couch behind us a little while ago, but nevertheless, I mean, it's still like what to do. And, and even for my wife's sake, you know, dad was, was with it until he really wasn't. I mean, it, there was some gradual nature to it, but the decline, you know, there's a line in, uh, I think it was a Hemingway's a, the sun also rises and he said they, they they're in a bar and the guy says to the other he said how did you go broke how did you lose your fortune and he said gradually then suddenly and yeah. it, you know as i look at mom and dad's decline it was it was gradual until it was sudden it was like little hint here little thing here and then suddenly it was full crisis management mode i had to leave work for four weeks you know completely live move up to new hampshire live with them you know, just this enormous lift and dad. Now the, the blessing here is dad has amassed enough wealth that he's going to be able to live out his days really well. And he, he should be super proud of that. Awesome. The challenge is he did not take the steps to organize those things. So now I am having to spend weeks and weeks of, you know, faxing, this is what they, they all fax. They sure. still need yeah. faxes to this yep. day, faxing the banks and the different accounts and trying to pull his money together. And, you know, we had to go through the conversation of, of, you know, kind of power of attorney stuff and, and executor of the will, like without just them having handled that. Those are things that if you are a parent out there, you know, like get your stuff in order and, and ensure that, uh, that you give that gift to your kids 
that you don't make them have to figure out who's responsible for what and, um, and, and do the unnecessary work. That's the discipline that I think, you know, preparing for that, whether it be gradual or sudden moment, uh, is a real gift. So that would be one of the learnings from this. As for the fear that that could be me someday, it's real. And, you know, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm, I'm torn because it is a, there's part of me that says, you know, dad lived very healthy, right? Took, you know, he read and learned and taught. I mean, he did, he barely drank, you know, he did everything right. And, you know, he's physically in extraordinary shape and here he is 78, you know, and, and, and losing, you know, his most valuable uh, resource. So there's a part of me that looks at it and says, you know, what's it? Might as well enjoy where I'm at right now. And then there's the other part of me that says, I better really get it together or else, you know, I could be facing this down. Um, it's part of me that says, and you know, believes that maybe there'll be some actual breakthroughs and some cures by then. But mostly I'm just trying to learn how to, how to enjoy each part of what he's got left. And, and this is important too, you know, it's like that has, like they say, he has good days and bad days, but not comparing them to each other. Like we talked about earlier, you know, trying not to compare one day to another because they're just, that's just who he is right now. I mean, and, and so what he and I talk about with this, and I think there's a lesson in this for everybody, you know, my dad will say sometimes like, he's aware that he's got something wrong with his brain. And so he'll, he'll say, uh, you know, I got to fight this thing. I got to beat it. And when he talks about beating it, you know, I would, at first I like really admired the courage, although there was a sadness in it because, you know, you kind of know that there, there's no necessary, you know, there's not really, I guess, you know, beating the disease. Although I think you could have an argument about what that looks like, but I was talking to my dad about just one day when we were together and I had him, you know, put his hands up and I said, dad, I want to share something with you about this, you know, fighting against Alzheimer's. I said, I, he put his hands up with me and this is an old demonstration. I think I saw Tony Robbins do it years ago, but I, I had him put his hands up like this with mine, you know, just over his head and kind of grasp our hands together. And I started to push into him. And of course, the immediate reaction you would expect is what he pushed, pushed back. Right. And I said to him, I said, dad, don't, you know, why, why'd you push back? He said, I don't know. I said, exactly. It's just, when we put pressure on something, it puts pressure back. That's a natural reaction. And so when we try to fight something in our lives and beat it, what we're doing is we're giving it energy. And the old saying is that which we resist persists. Right. And so if dad's focused on beating the disease, he's going to consistently give the disease leverage and energy and, and fight. And so we, we, we made this little shift. So then I did the exercise again and he started to lean into me. And as he started to lean into me, I just pulled him towards me and I moved him and he came right with me. And I just, I looked at him. I said, now see how easy that was. And he said, yeah. I said, so let's, instead of fighting it, why don't we learn to dance with it? Mm -hmm. Well, and just that idea that, that, you know, we learn to dance with the disease rather than fight it because there's going to be moments that he can't find the word. Right. And instead of getting mad at the disease, which gives the disease even more leverage over him, 
let's dance with it if we can, right? It's, it's not an easy ask, but but it but let's dance with it and say, what what's another word or what's another way to try to say this thing that I want to say? Or, you know, can we just sometimes just say, you know what? We'll come back to it. It's not important. You know, it's just like, you know, ways to to just realize like you're gonna wake up every day and you're gonna be at a different place. Some days are really sharp, some days aren't as great. So dance with it. On the sharp days, be out there and you know, mix it up as much as you can. And on the days when it's not necessarily working for you, just, you know, maybe listen or, or, you know, be a little bit more thoughtful or don't, don't get upset about it. And the same for all of us with him, right? Like don't fight against what was just meet him where he's at and, and dance with who he is that day. So you're going through this and processing all of this over a three or four month or a three or four week period of time. When a few yep. weeks prior to that, you were interviewing Simon Sinek in probably maybe yeah. one of the largest crowds you've been in as a professional speaker um, from yep. an outsider's perspective, what one might consider like a highlight of your career. Talk yeah. to me about the moment you were asked to interview Simon Sinek and, and tell me about any doubts or fears or reservations you had. I'd love to hear how you processed that opportunity. I would love to. And to draw this connection, ultimately, Paul, this is kind of the amazing part of this is I was on the flight uh, to LA when I got word that mom and dad had COVID. Oh, man. And so, so going to that event with Cynic, like the biggest moment of my career, for sure, a career highlight. And that was, uh, and I was as far from them in New Hampshire as, as I could be. Yeah. And that was the, you know, and we had known for a long time that that was a likely death sentence for mom and everything that it would possibly mean. So this whole thing, you know, again, what, what's fascinating about this is, and, and we can talk a little bit more about the philosophy of this, but like how to not compartmentalize, but actually integrate like that added pressure and distraction into a particular moment to still execute that moment and, 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 and perform at the level that, you know, that I wanted to, that, that was an extreme mindset exercise yeah. and uh might be a, a, a cool place for us to return to but to answer your question i have been uh brad Casebeer had turned me on to the book the infinite game by simon sinek which is his most recent work and for my money his best work yet it really spoke to me more than even his why which he's famous for and i had become prescriptive with this book i was you know handing it to CEOs that I coach and executive teams, and we were reading it and discussing it and talking about, you know, shifting this, this mindset from finite games, like, you know, quarterly and annual and, and playing small to playing a bigger game about a just cause. What are we doing in the world? What are we contributing to the world as a whole? And so, you know, I'd been this, this massive advocate of it. And then uh, service Titan for whom I'm, I'm their executive coach. Uh, you know, they reached out to me and they said, Hey, Keith, we had, we had a request. Uh, you know, we've got Pantheon coming up, which is the big event. It's at the LA Coliseum this year. And, um, and we would love it if you would speak, if you would keynote. And I said, of course, you know, I'm happy to do that. Uh, that'd be, you know, that's an honor. Thank you. And they said, Hey, one more favor. Um, so we are bringing in Simon Sinek and he wants, instead of to speak, you'd like someone to interview him. And is there any way you'd be willing to do that for us? And it was like one of those just just incredible cosmic moments where 
the person, Christine, no, the woman asking me this question, she had absolutely no idea about my connection to cynic, my adoration or admiration for his work, none of it. And I get this request now, of course, I'm like, you know, glowing at this opportunity, but here's the most important part of this. The reason this happened is because they asked Tom Howard, who's uh, you know, one of the executive over at, at Service Titan in regard to uh, customer success. They asked him to do it. And Tom said, you know who you should really ask to do that is Keith Mercurio. Because Tom knew about you know, my love of his work and, and putting me in that position. But this is one of those examples where, I mean, this is the pure result of generosity from somebody who wanted to, I mean, this would have been a great moment for Tom. And yet he decided that he'd rather give it to me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I can't think of a more beautiful, you know, story of, of humility and generosity and leadership than, than that way of looking at the world. And that's why people, you know, adore Tom Howard and why he's had such extraordinary success in his life. And I know he's been a guest for you. And I mean, he's just, he's a really remarkable guy. Yeah. It's, it's not just me. You're telling me that adores him. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and that's, but that's, that's what I'm saying. And so this is like a, a great example of, I mean, I, I was the, this was a, I didn't do anything to get into this, but I was the recipient of this, you know, series of, of, you know, significant events. So really powerful. And I had a lot of gratitude to Tom for that. So I want to get into the details of preparing for this. We will come back to the compartmentalizing or not compartmentalizing, but, um, Tell me about the details about how you prepared and did you have any limiting beliefs? Did you, were you nervous? What was the process like? I know that's a lot of questions in one. No, it's perfect. And, and you're, you know, as usual, you're dialed into, to where the real, you know, for me, I think the important work is done. I I had a significant number of limiting beliefs, which funny enough, the limiting beliefs were being driven by, um, you know, my own personal desires and ego. So Mm -hmm. Uh, my biggest fear. Okay. So my job was to interview Simon Sinek in front of about, you know, I don't know, three or 4,000 people, right? Big stage, big moment, everything else, everything in me, every fiber of who I am wanted to impress him and them in that order. And I knew that the one thing that could cause me to ruin this experience would be trying to impress him and them in that order. Right. Right. And so the, my job was to interview him. People did not, we, we paid him, you know, a lot of money. They paid a lot of money. The audience was there to hear from him. And my job was to be a conduit for that and to, to get over my own self and self-interest was my biggest challenge. And I was worried sick about it, Paul. I was, I was worried sick that a, I was going to let my ego, uh, overtake, you know, what I knew was going to be the way of showing up to serve and B, I was going to then embarrass myself or, or look bad because I did that thing and people could see it. And so that was like the, the, the preparation was very, very much about how do I, and then, so now that's part two to this, which is at the same time, I still need to be able to build context for our audience who likely many of them have not read the book, don't know the concepts. 
build context for them in asking the question, which requires a couple of few sentences to create enough of, of a tie down yeah. to then ask the question to create the relevance of his content to their lives. And so it was like, how do I make sure that I am truly in service of these two audiences here, him and them, while simultaneously giving enough to ensure that it all makes sense uh, without trying to impress or appear impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the that was the the mental gymnastics that were going on in preparation for um, for this. And additionally, um, in the spirit of you know something that you and I talked about today, when I met him ahead of time, all he wanted to do was talk about just just the industry as a whole. However, we did no joint preparation and there were no prepared questions. He wanted to, he said to me, as I said to you today, uh, you know, taking the, the quote directly from him, uh, you lead and I'll follow. And so you had no speaker notes. You had no clipboard with questions. You just led the conversation. No, I, what did that look like? I did actually, this oh, good. is, this is good. cool. You, Hold I on was, one sec. I was getting anxious thinking of the idea show you this. of you sitting up there like, Hey, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, no, I, I gave it an enormous amount of thought, like an inordinate amount of thought and created a path, uh, an outline of how I was going to introduce and ask and, and everything else. And then, so these were, these were my notes. Yeah. So that's, that's everything I went up there with. With that yeah. said, I never took it out of my coat. Good. So, yeah, so uh, it was it, same thing. It was prepared and it sat there, but it was, it was ingrained. And then some of them, I, I, I never hit. And then many other questions I, I asked, and, and this is what, when we, when we train people in speaking, when I coach people in speaking, I let them write out what they want to write. I let them write their notes and, and everything else. But then I tell them it's time to just, you've studied it. Now let it go and trust that it'll be there when you need it. Mm -hmm. And because what we get lost in, and I'm watching you do this right now, you had some prepared questions and you've asked a couple of those and many other questions that were not part of your list. Yeah. Um, I've watched you make notes as we've you know kind of gone through this podcast. And that's what makes it organic and meaningful because if you're just thinking about what you're going to say next, a conversation loses its depth. Right. If, if imagine if I had shared that about, you know, my, my mom dying and dad having Alzheimer's and your next, you just went to the next question on your list about, you know, Simon Sinek, like, just like that with, with a, it, it, it would have felt empty, right? Instead, because you're present and you're listening, it, it occurred to you that there were more questions, more depth to go here. And so that's, that's what a conversation you can prepare for it, but then you need to just let that preparation go yeah. and be present to the person in front of you and keep listening to them. And I had some cool moments like that with cynic on stage where I, I was able to be, I did a, a pretty good job and I was able to be present to him and hear things and then challenge him and ask some questions that he certain, you know, I mean, he wasn't prepared for any of them, but he definitely wasn't prepared for these because they were in the moment. They were, they were just occurring between us. I would imagine in that moment, there are several thousand people who didn't know who you were or were hearing you for the first time, or maybe, you know, hadn't crossed paths with you at some point. So 
I imagine you got some pretty good feedback after the event. How do you manage the ego side of that? Like you're not there to impress, but you know, you impressed. And like, how does that then do you wrestle with that? I, what's that feel like? That's a weird uh, question, well, but I'm glad. No, we're talking it's great. About it. It's great. It's great. Uh, because I, I think I'd, I'd sent my wife something like, you know, because after I was done, then there was, it was all like, just, I mean, everyone was around and, and I had just done both my keynote, which, I mean, they were good. I'd say like 400 people that, that attended that plus the, then the, the Simon Sinek stuff on stage and both could, you know, they went exceptionally. I mean, right. Sinek was awesome. We had great report. My keynote was honestly one of the, probably one of the best I've ever given just incredible connection to the audience in that and connection with them. It was, it was just incredible. And, um, and so I sent my wife some, so afterwards, everyone's just hanging out and I have no responsibilities. And I'm just like, I'm like, I am going to wander the grounds and soak in as much adoration as I possibly can. Now, like this is yes. my reward. This yeah. is, I mean, I, I could not, my, I was like, let please, you know, yeah. that is my, yes. And, and stop it, you know, stop, stop, uh -huh. yeah. you, know, you know, just, and it was like total soaking up of the, of, uh, for the ego. Like I let, sure. uh, let that, let that wash over. And I've learned too. um, my Brendan Finn is, uh, he's actually about to become a Lieutenant Colonel now in the Marine Corps. And it, he's my best friend since we were 14 years old and just this remarkable guy in my life. And he, he talks about this all the time that one of the hardest things to, to be graceful with is the acceptance of, of, of a compliment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there was a moment, uh, years ago in, in our exploration that, that he and I got into this conversation about discovering, like, you know, when, when somebody gives you a compliment, it's a gift, it's a gift. It's them saying here, I want you to have this right. And, and I've picked it out just for you, these words, this sentiment, this is something I want to come up to you and, and, and give to you. And when we reject a compliment, it's like rejecting a gift. Yeah. And so, and so all of a sudden that person's like, you know, Keith, I just want to tell you how, you know, how much that is going to impact my life or whatever. And, and I used to say stuff like, well, you know, that's really, you know, no, 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 it's not me. Like that's you, you know, that's going to be up to you. What do you do with it? And it turned into some, you know, spin sure. zone to try to look humble or whatever. And through like a lot of work and practice, uh, you know, now I just say like, thank you so much. Yeah. Like that is, that means the world to me and it does. And I just let myself be honest about it now and just say, no, this, are you kidding me? Like this, you know, these compliments are, uh, they're beautiful. They, they fill me up and, and I know it'll be a very short period of time that they last just like opening presence on Christmas morning. Like there's a, you know, as a kid, there was that burst of, of thrill and then, uh, and that's time to get back to work. So, so you, you mentioned on the flight over, you'd learned about what was going on back home and you're yeah. physically and emotionally further from that situation than you could possibly be. You talked about, um, not compartmentalizing it. My natural thought when you said that was how did you compartmentalize that? How did you set that to one side to go execute on the interview and not miss the opportunity and have regrets? But you mentioned that not compartmentalizing it was the way through. Yeah. So 
how do you or can you draw a correlation between conflict and opportunity and just not compartmentalizing those things as you, you know, for the business leaders or whoever listening as they go through the, the challenges and opportunities that are in front of them? Yeah. I mean, look, there's only, there's only one you. So, you know, this kind of falls back to an old premise that we used to hear. There's just so many things I think that are just taught and repeated in business that are just, just kind of thoughtless lessons. And, and one of them is, you know, you keep home at home and you keep work at work. Right now, look, I, there's, you know, for, for the, for people that if they're going to be coming home angry from work, you know, that, that premise makes sense. Like you got to learn to, to not bring that into your life at home and vice versa, right? Like there's, I, I get that, but this idea that we can separate into different humans, like we, you know, I've heard it said like who you are at home is who you are, who you are at work is also who you are you know, who you are at your kid's ball game or out at the bar or who you are in traffic is who you are. Mm-hmm. Right. So like there, it's about integrating these different parts of ourselves, not compartmentalizing them and, and asking them to be different, but asking them to be one, you know, and, and learning to be the best version of ourselves in these various circumstances, regardless of what's going on. And so, you know, to compartmentalize is sort of to like, in my mind to pretend like that thing isn't happening and put it out of my mind. There's no way I'm going to be able to put that out of my mind. Yeah. And so again, it's almost going back to the idea of like, you know, fighting something like, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Like that you're thinking about it when you say, don't think about it. Instead, you know, taking the time to just actually process my fears, my concerns, my anxiety around it. And then coming present to what I can and can't control in that moment with kind of an honest internal dialogue, doing whatever heavy lifting I can in the interim so that there is action or activity, you know, making phone calls, making as many preparations as I could, asking for help where I could get it, accepting help where I didn't get it, which was also a very painful experience in in the course of this. But then there's this moment where you have to, you have to call the right version of you to the table for the task at hand. Right. And so recognizing in this moment, who, who I need to be in order to execute on this, on this mission, uh, is absolutely critical. And so it's not thinking about what I need to do. That's the stuff that overwhelms you. It's asking and, and thinking about who I need to be because that guy can handle the what to do. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about interviewing you is I get to know you is your ability to kind of examine things all the way around. And I want to look at the, the kind of spectrum of, um, well, we'll talk about ego. So how do you manage the, you know, reality that you are capable, you are special, you are talented, you are gifted. And then at the same time in the, with the perspective of the world, you're very insignificant, very little, very small. How do you kind of manage that tension between those two things? Maybe with your coaching clients where you are significant, you are capable, but it's also not all about you. And I'm sorry if that's a weird question. No, I, I, it's not a weird question. I just, I think I'm, probably 
I, I, well, I don't know that I do a very good job balancing it. I think I do in my coaching. You know, I think I do in my coaching because I, I, in, I, I've through a lot of hard work, like I really am so present to the people that I coach and wanting, I was just, in fact, on a coaching call with this brilliant woman that I'm working with right now. And she's really conflicted with, you know, some things that she's working on. And I, it was like every bit of coaching was, was for her and nothing was wanted from her. And so I felt good about that. Like, you know, those, those moments, I feel really good. But then, you know, I hang up the, the phone from a day of coaching people and, and giving, you know, I think of myself with plenty of payoff, but, you know, really focused on them. And I immediately want my wife to then give me the, the feedback that says how great I am and how, you know, uh, whatever, how handsome I am, how, you know, lucky she is, whatever else. By the way, this is her coming home right now. And the first thing she's going to do, Paul, is she's going to come in my office and she's going to close these double doors when she gets here. Right. Yeah. And this is, this is my favorite, like, you know, little, little joke that I have about this, that, um, people pay me, uh, thousands of dollars to hear me speak. My wife made me spend thousands of dollars to ensure that she doesn't hear me speak, right? By putting these doors up in my office. That is the <laughs> perfect way to answer that question, actually, because uh, the, the question I was really trying to ask is how do you manage you're kind of a big deal and you're kind of not a big deal and somewhere in there you have to live and find happiness. So that is actually, that is really funny. So it's yeah, she, no, nobody faster to humble me than, than my wife closing my double doors while I'm being interviewed. Right. Like right. it's just, it's perfect. It'll happen. It'll happen here in a moment. Um, and, 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 you know, it's it, the other thing is like to step out of it. It's totally fair. Right. Like, of course you know, she's heard the same message over and over and over again, not to mention she's the one that's going to be most likely to, to witness me not live the message on a, you know, uh, more regular basis than sure. anybody else and, or, you know, to be outside of, of, of my integrity on it. So, um, but also, you know, Paul, to your point, like there's, there, there's also the recognition, like not a big deal is like real, truly not a big deal. And in that, like still not doing enough, not contributing enough compared to, you know, to what's possible and staying really focused on what am I contributing purely? not, yeah. uh, who, you know, who am I or, you know, what, what success I've, I've had or anything like that, that that's, and I, I think for the most part, I'm honestly, I'm more, more afraid of being a big deal than, than of not. Why? Um, there's an enormous amount of, of, of pressure that comes from there. That she comes is shutting the doors <laughs> that moment yeah. that, you know what? She proved me wrong, at least in this moment. She didn't shut him. She just came and waved for me. So, nice. um, so there, what do I know? Right. Once again, <laughs> <That's great>. uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think the idea of, of having any sort of like notoriety or, um, you know, fame, it brings a tremendous amount of, of pressure and scrutiny with it. And, you know, we've watched people yet. It, there's, there's a rise and Americans especially tend to do this, but there's this like rise of, um, and, and again, like, you know, whether this is just, you know, in a, a very small sector or on a national level or whatever it becomes, but there's this sort of period when everyone's rooting for you. And then sure. there's a certain level at which you become 
you know, somebody can become known enough to where the suddenly the applause turns to, uh, you know, turns to turns to scrutiny. And that's a scary, that's a really scary thought. It is. That's a really scary thought. And I think you have to, as a human being, you have to do an enormous amount of, of spiritual work to be able to handle uh, that level of, of public awareness and focus on your life. And I, I don't know that I'm ready for that. Yeah. I mean, I can think about how it feels when I have one person not happy with me or two people not happy with me. Imagine when thousands of people truly have a, a negative opinion. Um, yeah. Let's, you mentioned coaching and I want to talk about coaching. You coach very high performing individuals. What are some of the similarities of your coaching clients that you can share if at all, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that make them high performers? Um, what is holding some of them back? Talk to me about your coaching. Well, for sure, the the similarity of the most notable similarity of these high performing individuals is that they have a coach. I, I mean, the mere fact that they are constantly in pursuit of coaching is what makes them so remarkable. And they uh, almost none of them. I'm not. I'm especially at the, the the executive or owner or founder level. I'm not their only coach. They have multiple coaches. I mean, they are like just so hungry for that personal development and, and so hungry for finding out what they don't know or finding out what they were wrong about. And, and they give a ton of credit away along the way, despite the fact that they're all pretty ego driven. I mean, they, right. they, they are in that same battle with, you know, the, the pride in what they've built versus the humility to know that they need to be more if they want to do more. And so there's just a, a really um, beautiful balance that they tend to strike, but notably for all that they've accomplished, they realize that they're, that none of it really means anything that it's really about the, the journey, like the growth that they're accomplishing along the way. That's the real success of it not what they've what their businesses have done or how many you know millions or billions or whatever that they're sure. they're valued at so i i find that to be a, a like a the, the most common thread and then you know they're really they're really good people mm -hmm. like they're exceptionally good people I mean, not even just like wow they're successful and they want to do this work and they're they're pretty nice like they the most notable thing about all of them is that they're really nice people, good people that are yeah. focused on family and they focus on their community and they give, they're very generous. They give time, they give money. Um, you don't see these people holding on. They don't, uh, they trust people. They see the best in people. They want the best for people. They, they, and, and so you know, these, these are not people that, that look at the world in a finite way or in a scarcity mindset They're They look at abundance and they just are constantly saying, you know, why not? Like, let's build something bigger. Let's do more. Let's give more. And so they really look out for the world around them. And those are the two common threads that are immediately present at the top of my mind. When you ask that question. Can you think of a significant breakthrough you've had with a client or a similar breakthrough you've had? Can you predict any breakthroughs? Like, what does that look like? Mm. 
So uh, let me ponder this by kind of thinking through the definition of a breakthrough, as I once learned, is it's an insight plus an action. Okay. So yeah. I think sometimes we mistake breakthroughs for insights and, and the problem with an insight is that, you know, it, without an action, nothing changes. You just, now you just know what you're not doing or know what's possible, but you haven't done it yet. So it's an insight plus an action. Um, yes, absolute. And, and, and thank you for letting me process that because it immediately brings me to just this incredible experience that we had. We were doing some coaching work. Um, really powerful coaching work on, on values. And, uh, it was, it's a values exercise that I've been developing out of, um, I studied the, the book tribal leadership, which was really informative, but I wanted to figure out how to take it and, and actually put it into the businesses. And so we started doing these values exercises and one of my team members that I was, uh, I was coaching with, um, the first time we went through the values exercise, he kind of, uh, I'll put it this way. The values exercise is, is one in which you explore a core value um, that you that you have that and, and the way a core value is def defined is um, it's a value without which life wouldn't be worth living. Okay. And so, you know, for for some and so these are like the the real one, two, three, like core values of your life. And they usually were developed somewhere in childhood. And they'll be, you know, something like um, you know, humility or achievement or um, spirituality or love or kindness, right? And 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 you kind of explore the origin story of of where you think this came from. It's a really beautiful exercise. Um, in fact, it, we I might even give you some a little piece if you want to highlight, and we could talk to people about how to go find their their core values. But so we we went through this exercise, and there's kind of two ways that you see people show up during this exercise. Uh, to either all in totally vulnerable and they're just, and they're really sharing and you can feel it. Or sometimes people will tend to approach the exercise as a way to, um, you know, almost politic or present themselves the way that they want to be seen rather mm -hmm. than really being willing to show exactly who they are and where that came from. And so when I experience that, I'll usually coach those folks towards a second, like, Hey, let's, let's take another stab at this, right? Like, let's take another look at what you're really up to right now and what you want to accomplish. And so the second time around the circle, this guy comes back with just this super powerful share that actually had nothing to do per se with the values exercise, but it was about how he and his son, uh, that I didn't even know he had his 18 year old son, um, really powerful story about how they'd become estranged. And he hadn't spoken to him in years and he was just having this, uh, you know, this discovery of, of still being angry at some things that, that his son had done and, and the rift that it caused in the family. And it was really powerful and, and, and painful story. And so, you know, I just asked him some questions about like, you know, what kind of, what kind of pain do you imagine that your son you know, needed to be in and to be experiencing, to do the things that he did. At which point this, this man like really sort of uncovered the, the excruciating pain that, that his son must've been in and detached himself from the fact that anything, you know, right out of the four agreements, right? Like, don't take anything personally. Nobody's doing anything to you. 
he was able to see his son wasn't doing this to him. And I think it was the first time he'd seen that. And so then we're sitting there and he said, but you know, now what, now what do I do? So insight, right now, what do I do? And I said, well, (laughs) you call him. It was like, okay. And, you know, we just kind of sat there for a minute. I was like, like now he was Mm -hmm. like, oh, like right now, I'm like, like right now. And so he went off and he, and he called them and, uh, and he has this, like, he comes back in the room and he's just telling us about it. And he's like, yeah, no, we just had this conversation. And he told me how he's starting to look like me. And like, you know, and he, the first thing was he called and apologized and said, you know, I've been making you wrong. And I, um, I'm sorry for that. You know, that's, and think about that apology, how powerful that is. Right. Like, I'm sorry, I've been making you wrong. Um, and, and, you know, I'm truly sorry for that. And they, they started to connect and I'm telling you, like, Paul, when you see a breakthrough, what happens is the physiology of that other human being transforms. Mm -hmm. He walked out of the room and back into the room as two completely, uh, different people. He was a new man when he came back in that room, he looked physically different. His shoulders carried differently. There was an energy that had shifted in him everyone in the room could see it it's not some like this isn't isn't some just you know like you know hippie uh you know philosophical like you know his aura had changed i'm telling you everyone in that room can feel it and noted it right and so you know the 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 days and weeks that have followed and months that have followed his son has now come back and visited they he stayed with them over memorial day weekend they are completely like re-engaged it's brought joy back to his this guy's parents you know the grandparents to the son it's brought joy back to the son's life and you know they're still navigating they're still navigating some of the challenges with trust and things that had been broken with different family members of course you can't make anybody feel anything but you know the way that he's approached this wasn't an either or binary situation it was a, it was a yes and how do and right. both you know how do we yeah. how do we bring him back into our lives and respect the concerns that some people might have just just by asking a better question you know with an and rather than an or you know do we bring him back into our lives or do we respect that people are, are uncomfortable they ask and you know how do we bring right. them back into our lives and make sure that we honor the people around us to, to give them some comfort so they kept finding elegant ways to do this that have just brought so much joy and healing to this family um it's remarkable it's remarkable and you know yeah i mean that's that's the absolute that's the best how is coaching different from counseling or therapy, or is it different? Certainly, uh, I'm completely unqualified. That's the most important part. I have no, no degree, no, uh, formal training. I have no, 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 but I should not be mistaken for a therapist. Let me (laughs) promise you that that is, uh, critically important. Um, you know, I think that I, I will tell you though, that I've drawn a lot of my a lot of my techniques from my own experiences in both coaching and therapy, mm-hmm. primarily through emotional interviewing, you know, finding out, I mean, that what's, you know, so how is it different? It's, it's different because of the setting. Uh, mm-hmm. it's different because, you know, I don't, I can't speak for all therapy, but not all sure. therapy is action oriented. Right. A lot of it is, is sort of just, you know, 
cognitive without the the behavioral part where you actually go into the the next steps um and i also don't pretend to know nor ask people to bear their souls like that's not part of it so we don't have to go into that work it's really up to but i guess any good therapist would say this too it's really up to the person to figure out like how where they want to go and what they truly want. Right. And as a coach, my, my job is there to guide them. Now I'll tell you the other part of coaching that makes it distinctly different is this isn't all we do. We'll go there when that's what happens to be the most relevant and critical thing. But a lot of what we do is the operational strategic and tactical elements of, of how to, you know, run better one-on-ones, how to, how to run a proper level 10 meeting, you know, how to read your financials. I mean, we're doing tactical and strategic work along with this coaching just goes there when it needs to go there. Uh, because that's the piece that's holding somebody back from being the leader that they could be for your clients. What is a way they would describe being different after a, let's say a year or two of coaching? What are, are there common themes? What are the similarities there? Yeah, I can, I can answer this question with like a, a, a unique amount of, um, of specificity because I literally just had an interview yesterday with two of my former coaching team members who spent years uh, going through my coaching and we were recording a video for new people and we got to ask them this question. So, um, you know, Michael Wood, Woody uh, is a, a, a a Brit and a brilliant salesman from the radiant team down in Austin. He was the first million dollar plumber I ever came across. He's you know, sold 4 million or whatever annually. Now he runs a sales team. That's just off the charts. And when he and I first met, like he, what he was, not when we first met, when we first started working together, he, we had a very specific moment where we were outside and he had just witnessed like a really deep kind of emotional intelligence, you know, and an emotional conversation take place amongst a lot of people. And I could tell, you know, he was just so uncomfortable with it. Super high performer, crazy intellect, one of the most brilliant guys I've, I've met. And he just, I mean, his, he, he, he even tells the story, like, you know, one of our team members was like sort of you know, really exploring something. They're in tears, which happens. That's not the only thing we do. I swear we don't only cry, even though that, that seemed, my nickname by my old CEO was the vampire of tears. So uh, there is something to be said for that. But it, it happened to be an emotional deal. And it, like he had to, he got up and went and made a coffee because he just couldn't stand to be in that presence because he had, for all of his intellectual horsepower, he had not developed his depth of um, emotional intelligence that would allow him to stay present to something like that. And he asked me outside, he was very just consumed with this idea that, you know, the team was bringing me on board. And he just said to me, he's like, Keith, you know, is, I see what you do. I see that I don't have that, but I don't know if I want it. I do not know if I want it. And he's like, is it worth it? And I said, Honestly, I don't know what there are days that I wish I could undo the work that's, you know, gotten me to whatever this current level of self-awareness is, because the thing about self-awareness is you can't unsee a blind spot once you've seen it, right? Like once I discovered that I was consistently, you know, using charm to try to manipulate people, once I discovered that I was 
pretending uh, that I might, you know, speaking and training and coaching were for others when it was actually for myself. Uh, once I discovered that uh, everything I did was designed to get me something, uh, I couldn't unsee those things. And so it's like, there's this hyper self-awareness that then can make life very challenging. And not to mention this awareness of others that kind of, it's like, you just, you know, you can tell when people just aren't being transparent or being integrous. And I don't want that to sound arrogant. Like you can, but you just right. feel it. You, you know, it's like, I, I know it because I'm, I'm so present to it in myself, you know? And, and uh, I said, there's some burden that comes with that. And I said, I said, Woody, I don't, I don't know. I said, the only thing I can tell you is that I know I've impacted the world and the lives of others a lot more than I ever could have if I didn't go on the journey. That I know. I don't know that I'm happier. I, I, I don't. I don't think I am. But I am more effective. That I know. And so he, you know, very, I said, dude, if you don't want to go down this road, that's okay. You do not have to. And it is not for the faint of heart. Like if you go down this road to do this coaching, to really learn how to be a more influential, you know, human being and leader, you know, once, once you start the work, it'll, it'll never be quite the same. And so yesterday we're checking in, it's literally three years from that moment. Um, and he, he did the work, man. Mm -hmm. He did the work as well as anybody I've seen. He showed up every session and no matter what, you know, he would always, present his case, present his concern, present whatever challenge he was having as a leader, as a, you know, as a human, uh, where he was stuck on something. And then he would, and then he would lean into the coaching and the discomfort. And, you know, as a result, I mean, his career has grown exponentially. And I asked him, I said, you know, what's different for you now? And, and I said to him three years later, was it worth it? Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I don't know. You know, he said, in some ways, I'm not sure. And then as he started to think about it, he just said, but you know, you, you, I promise you, you can ask my wife who's very happy and my mom and, you know, all the now dozens of team members that he's led. And he said, you know, their lives, like they would be able to tell you definitively their lives are better because of the work that I've done. You mentioned that you discovered at some point that you were using charm to potentially manipulate people. Yeah. I assume that wasn't hypothetical. What was the process for discovering that and what, and how did that change your perspective on yourself or the way you interact with people? That's a very vulnerable thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, I mean, that, that was one of many mechanisms that I leaned into just the, the, I was in a, uh, I was in a class with, um, I was taking this, this, this program, one of the many, I, I, I always say it this way. It was one of, one of the many cults that I've joined over the years. And, uh, this particular one was uh, landmark advanced, which is, I mean, it is like super culty in, in its vibe and also so, so worthwhile, by the way, like I, I recommend that people join a cult at least for once a year for a few days and just go <laughs> immerse themselves in it. You're, you're going to be fine to walk out the other side and take with it what you want, but there's powerful learnings in these, you know, self-development programs that really push your, push you out of your personal comforts. And, um, Kathy Elliott was the woman's name. She was a brilliant Australian 
uh, powerful, tall, beautiful, successful CEO of multiple companies. And she led the forum. And there was this moment when um, she had just shared something about 200 people in the, the, the group, I think. And she had just shared something. And then she said, she asked the question, she said, who, who would like to share? So she did, oh, we had just come to this place. This was it. So the, the content was just come to this place of nobody does anything that doesn't give them something. Nobody does something without a payoff. And it was a very profound moment where, you know, everyone was kind of coming to this realization. And this is the process. But this is the very direct answer to your question. And then she goes, who would like to share something? And uh, I raised my hand and I said, I have a question to ask. And she looked at me in front of those 200 people and she said, sit down until you're coachable. She said that to me in front of 200 people. And I was embarrassed and red in my face and totally anxious and then spent hours stewing over it making her wrong, how, how her reaction was wrong. I was just going to ask this question. It was a good question on behalf of a whole bunch of other people. And, um, and so then I just had to sit with that for hours and then overnight into the next day, come back to class and whatever else. And, uh, and then I, I realized, and by the way, let me just, do you, do you get it? Do you, do you, what, what Paul do you think if I want to give you a shot at this to, if you notice like why she reacted that way. So I'll, I'll replay it for you. So she said, yeah. who would like to share? She said, who would like to share something? I raised my hand. I said, I have a question. And she said, sit the F down until you're coachable. It was because you were kind of confrontational maybe. And you had a question instead of something to share or. Exactly. No, yeah. that's, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. She asked who, who wanted to give. And I stood up to take, I want to get, yeah. That makes total sense. And she was a hundred percent right. But see, I didn't even see didn't it. Even it click. was an un yep. right. It was an unseen intention of mine. Mm -hmm. And she was even more right than she probably even knew or probably did know because she was that like insanely insightful. But the point was that she said, like, look at you, like, even in this moment of vulnerability where there's an opportunity to share for others, you want to ask a question to look good. Mm -hmm. And she was exactly right. I had a question that I thought would, you know, like, but again, it's not conscious thought, Paul. It's not right. like I'm going to ask this question because it's going to look good. It was like, oh, I'm going to yeah. ask something right yeah. now. The, it's the unexplored intention, like the stuff that lives below the surface that drives everything we do, everything we do, right. 99 plus percent of what we do comes from the non-conscious. Right. It's not done intentionally. That's the whole point of this work is to explore the non-conscious intentions that lead to our behaviors. And so all of a sudden I started examining and I, this is the coaching that I still give. What am I really up to? Mm -hmm. What am I really up to when I ask that question? What am I really up to when I offer that compliment? I mean, I can't tell you how much I, like I discovered, I mean, my compliments were completely designed to evoke a compliment or, uh, you know, a charm, uh, you know, or a nice impression in return. They weren't a gift. They weren't generous. I wanted to pretend like they were, but they were all designed to make me look a certain way or to make me look good or to, you know, avoid looking bad. 
that every question, every comment, everything I did was calculated in ways that I didn't even want to honestly confront and acknowledge. Um, you know, and I, and again, I'll, I think I'll just, you know, honestly say it could be 10 years from now. And, uh, and I, I bet I'll look back at the way I am right now as sort of that same, like, wow, you know, what I didn't know about what I was really up to here, but that discovery, first of all, left me almost paralyzed. I could barely speak for like a week because I started, you know, sentences just on autopilot and had to interrupt them to go, wait a minute, what am I really up to right now? And had to really explore the purity of any intent at all. And then ultimately come to grips with at least, if nothing else, the reality that, uh, you know, of being authentic in my inauthenticity, just owning the fact that I wasn't as pure and righteous as I pretended to be. And, um, and that in its own way was just like really liberating. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sure I still do it. I have my moments when I, when I, I probably lean into some old behaviors, but it was, it, it was quite a, an evolution. And, you know, thank you to her for having the courage to, you know, confront me in that moment and, and make me deal with myself. Uh, right. And so of course I wanted to blame everyone else, especially her. Um, but she made me deal with myself and, and that was a real gift. Kind of goes back to what you mentioned in reference to your coaching clients. It's the eagerness and the humility to find out what you don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. Although I would say, I don't know that I demonstrated eagerness in that I was, uh, I was just, I was just mad at her for a while and thankfully did not remain there indefinitely. Um, yeah. But yes, I, I, it was, I, I do place value in the discomfort that comes with finding out that I'm wrong, especially about the kind of most important topic in my life, which is me. Right. And that uh, would probably define the nature of your coaching or coaching in general with a good coach. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think the, the if I remember correctly, we defined my coaching as, um, confrontational counterintuitive and somehow completely comforting like yeah. that, that it is it, it it does bring those elements into it but there's so much love in it that i mean that's what that my 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 coaching clients or team members whatever um they consistently uh probably the most common sentence uttered in my direction is god i hate you and i love you yeah so you mentioned confrontation. We're going to take a hard left turn here. This is the hardest left turn or about face I've ever taken on a podcast. So here we go. You had a confrontation with a deer a few months ago. Don't, don't choke on your coffee there. Tell me about, tell me the story about the deer. <laughs> uh, oh, that was brilliant, bud. You are, you are, that is, a, that is a masterful transition and segue. God. So December 3rd, uh, we went up to visit my parents in New Hampshire. Now at this time, mom was, you know, she hadn't had COVID yet, but she was all the reasons she was in a wheelchair. Um, you know, she had been just on oxygen. Uh, my dad and I are sitting down to watch. It's like three in the afternoon, watching, um, 
the Bucks football game. It was Buckeyes, uh, right? Ohio State Buckeyes. No, no, sir. I'm kidding. No, 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 no. The Tampa Bay Bucks, and and of course, Dad and I are still Brady fans, even though it's like watching your, it's like watching your ex go off and be incredibly happy and successful in their new life, and there's a little party that's just. Really, like really happy for them I but get it. a little yep. party that's like damn it <laughs> so we're watching brady and um and my my it's uh, I, I gotta set this up a little bit because there's some important parts to it so my wife is helping my mother decorate for christmas which you have to understand had become in our adult lives like the bane of our existence because my mom had incredibly high standards and used to like decorate ha- the house in this extraordinary way for every holiday with she had thousands and thousands of these little trinkets and like really fine collectibles and everything else. Now, when we were kids, it was magical because she did it. Maybe we'd help, but she did it. But as an adult, she had the same expectation with none of the capacity to do any of the work. So it yeah. all fell to us and it, we hated it. Right. And so, and, and we knew, whatever the day did come that she dies, that we're going to have all this just stuff that we have to deal with and whatever else. And so, you know, this is classic. My wife is being a saint. She's carrying up boxes and boxes of Christmas ornaments. And, uh, all of a sudden, um, you know, there's ornaments out on the table, everything else. And all of a sudden we hear this cacophony come just crashing behind my wife. And I look at her and I'm like, you know, and she looks at me and I'm like, assuming she must've dropped a box of ornaments or something like really, because it was so loud, but it kept coming. And so I, it, it, I look at her and I start, I'm in the, the living room. There's the dining room between us. And then she's in the kitchen and the front hall is behind her. And all of a sudden I hear my wife scream, dear, dear, it's a deer. And I like, of course, that information in no way informs me in this context because that it's, that doesn't make any sense. But she starts moving towards me. I'm moving towards her, not knowing what's going on. And I suddenly see a full-grown doe turn the corner in the kitchen and come sprinting right at me. And my mom is here in the wheelchair. The dining room table is here covered in ornaments. If and and there's two windows to my right and i and I, this is the part of the story like i if if i didn't have three eyewitnesses to this story i i probably wouldn't believe it exactly the way it happened myself i dropped to a knee i'll say it this way for any football uh players out there i got pad level low and and squared this <laughs> this deer up uh on the broadside and i put it in a headlock opened the window, kicked the window, the screen out, no, punched the screen out, excuse me, and threw the deer out the window. And she like easily, it was probably an eight foot drop, easily handled the drop, went bounding off and out over the fence in the backyard and was just kneeling there watching this happen, like adrenaline pumping, just having this remarkable, like, overwhelmed experience and my my mom my mom's first comment she (laughs) the the deer had knocked over the dog's water bowl in the process and my mom her first comment the first thing she says after she just watched her son tackle a full-grown deer in the dining room and throw it out the window my mom goes would you look at that mess (laughs) 
And the, Paul, the best part is it wasn't even, it was just a bowl of water that got knocked over in a little bit of mud. It was like, took us a minute to clean it up, right? So then we're sitting there thinking about this. And my wife and I are just, we're just laughing hysterically. And I'm interview, I interviewed my wife. It's an adorable video, I'm sure. It's somewhere on the internet. But I, I interviewed her about the experience. And she said, you know, her response was, she was, I said, tell me about what you were, what was going on there. She's like, well, I really felt like you sort of rushed in and, and stole the moment from me. She said, I, I was utilizing some, some verbal de-escalation techniques. <laughs> and you went and tackled the tear. <laughs> so then in what is my all-time, one of my favorite lines that anyone but my wife has ever delivered after we're processing all of this, thinking about all those ornaments that were on the table that we have hated having to deal with for so long. My wife just looks at me and goes, God sent us a deer to take out your mother's ornaments and you threw it out the window. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. It, if listeners can't see just how bright red Keith's face is in the smile. So uh, Thank you for sharing that. that. Was... And I asked that because I wanted to, you know, you think about how our conversation started, you know, and then you think about the moments that happen and to hear your mom's story through that is pretty special. So thank you for sharing. Uh, buddy, I told you we were turning that around. Was there. Well done. That was well done. Um, I want to be respectful of your time for listeners who don't know this. This is a long podcast, but we spent about an hour messing with audio issues beforehand. So Keith has been unbelievably generous. We're going on probably two and a half hours together today, which is an absolute joy for me. So thank you, Keith. Um, I want to ask a, um, a closing question here. A couple of them. I've got two, you know, is, is there something you ever thought really mattered, but it really didn't? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of things, you know, a lot of things, uh, close, uh, all through high school and college and probably still to this day, to some extent, um, you know, what, what people think of me, uh, especially, you know, people who think poorly of me, you know, thinking that what they think really matters. Um, I mean, th there's a long list and I think I'll, uh, perhaps some more specifics will come to mind here as we go, but you know, there's just, there's this kind of phenomenon that I think is part of getting a little bit older as you start to, as I start to like, take a look back, but in a given moment, um, you know, the breadth of experience, for example, that I'm pulling from when I'm 20 years old, uh, you know, on that one day, you know, if you do what a little math on the calculator, right? 20 times 365, you know, that represents 173, you know, 7,300th of my life. Right. And so there's something about that moment that it it's, it's proportionally larger. And so it's easy to really think like, especially cause it's happening now and I can't see anything in the future, that this is everything and it really matters right now. Um, and then, 
you know, you get to be uh, 40 and that becomes one 14,600th of your life. And there's something about that um, dilution of the, the meaning of a moment or a day that starts to give a little bit more perspective. And, you know, for example, I, I always wanted to know exactly what was going to happen next and to try to control what was going to happen next. And then, you know, especially over the past few years, I mean, that was, that was a, a shocking, you know, turn of, of the way that we'd understood the world to be. And I had no idea what was going to happen next. Um, nor did I know what to do to make sure that, that things turned out the way that I hoped that they would. Um, but there was a certain piece that came with knowing whatever it was that I'd be okay. And so I think like the need to have a plan, the need to, you know, to, to, to be in control, to know what's going to happen, like the need to know what to do. Those things all seemed really, really important to me for a long time. And now I, I have a little bit more comfort and confidence, just knowing that whatever needs to be done, I'll be able to do it. Yeah. You know, and that it's because we always, I mean, we, I always, you all, we always rise to the occasion. We do, we do what needs to be done. And so, um, I think just, just certainty. I used to just think that certainty was really important. And, and, you know, I think the Tony Robbins quote is that, that the quality of your life is in direct proportion to the amount of uncertainty you can live with. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would say probably certainty would be a, a really good one. And final question. The last time I saw you was a year ago. Um, how are you different today? I, I can answer this. So, so the idea of transformation, which is central to my work is, you know, it's different than change because change is a comparison against the way that you were. Transformation is the concept of something completely new, right? So um, the caterpillar to the butterfly, same biology, same DNA, completely different right? Like a totally new, it's not a, it's not a changed caterpillar. It's a new butterfly, right? So that's the concept in transformation is that when we transform, we become a new version of ourselves. And there are three primary ways that people can transform, um, conditioning. So repeated patterns over and over and over until there's, you know, a set of pathways laid down, um, a change in environment. We move someplace new, we go to school, you know, we go to get a new job, whatever, and you get an opportunity to be transformed by the environment and then uh, a significant emotional event, you know, a birth, a death, a, a, an accident, a, you know, something joyful occurs. And, um, and we can, uh, through that significant emotional event, you know, you can find yourself transformed. I started the podcast by sharing with you kind of what had gone on over the last six, seven weeks. And it was the most significant emotional event of my life. Every day of it. And, and for a lot of reasons, it wasn't the death of my mom that, that anyone who's gone through that knows that that in its own right is what it is. But I mean, the process of being there, being with my father, who was trying to process this, having to, um, the, the emotional lift that went with it. I mean, I eulogized my mother in her hospital bed, uh, you know, then the, all the elements that went along with it, just the, the physical toll and the emotional toll and everything else. And in the end, uh, and, and truthfully, I didn't, I didn't get help in a lot of places where I expected it. I, I was 
really challenged by a lot of pieces of it. Um, but I had never thought of myself as having grit. I, I always thought that I was the product of luck, talent, intelligence, but not like that real disciplined, gritty, hard work. And I didn't feel like I'd ever been tested much in my life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think I can, I can say for the, you know, not, I think I, I can say now that I, I'm gritty and that wasn't something that I saw in myself before, you know, that ability to do the heavy, the heavy lift and the hard work beyond what anyone else would, uh, in order to make sure that it got done and done right on behalf of someone else, right? Like it was, it was, on, it was for, for other people. And I'm really proud of that. This episode, like all episodes is brought to you by contractor commerce, plug and play online stores for contractors. We see a future where every contractor has an online store. 